When Scripture answers this question for us, when God wants to give us an answer to this question in his word, he doesn't give a biological answer, as important and significant as that is, but he gives us a theological answer. He doesn't focus on how we were made, but by whom and for what reason. And to understand the way in which he communicates this to us, you need to know a bit about statues, which is obviously what you were expecting me to say next, wasn't it? Here are some statues. That is a statue of the Babylonian uh, so-called god Marduk, and that's a statue of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. And it was common in the ancient Near East, the time when the Old Testament was written, for the territories of kings and of gods to be marked by statues of them being put up. They were a way of saying, this place belongs to this god or this king. They're in charge. They deserve all the credit. They deserve all the praise. There are still some remnants of this kind of thing, um, even now, aren't there? Things like cash and stamps uh, have the pictures of the, the local ruler on them. Uh, if you don't know what those things are, by the way, if you ask someone older, they'll, they'll tell you what those things are. But there are, there's a mark of authority on those things. But this was a much more dynamic thing back in the time of the Old Testament. The statues of kings were reminders of their authority. The statues of the gods were that as well. But even more so, they suggested the presence of that god in some way being there. That statue was a, a meeting point, as it were, of the god and the people. The writers of the Old Testament, though, don't call them statues. Often, they call them images. And image was also used as a title for kings. So Ramesses was known as the image of the Egyptian gods. Kings were believed to be the representative of the gods on whose behalf they ruled. They had power and authority. They had to be respected and obeyed. Everyone had to work around making sure things went well for that king as part of their religion. The king was uniquely special. And you can see how once you have one person who's uniquely special, you can create a whole system of hierarchies that's let everyone, that let everyone know who is special, who's more special, who's the least special, who is not special at all. And then along comes Genesis and blows everyone's minds. Because listen to what it says. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man all humans in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed um, that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Okay, what's just happened? Well, by taking a word image that had a set of cultural meanings 
in that context, Genesis 1 is making a staggering claim. It's saying that every human being ever is made in the image of God. When this was written, there was one human being in a nation who was said to be in the image of God. And then Genesis says, all of you are. That's really very, very different. Moreover, it's saying every human being is royalty. One theologian states that in Genesis 1, image is a declaration that God intended to create human persons to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence in the world. Can you believe that of yourself? Can you believe that of the person next to you? But it is true. It is an essential part of being human. We want to really get that in this series and today. And so we're going to look at this idea of of humans being made in the image of God in detail so we really can get what God is saying and so we can really believe it. And we're going to use our familiar, hopefully if you've been around for a while now, story structure of creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation to help us with that. We're going to go through and see how that impacts our understanding of what it means to be made in God's image and how that understanding, the deeper we get it into us, the more we can apply it to ourselves, but also particularly to others. So God, we just ask you to help us with this. We thank you. You're here. You've been speaking. You've been touching uh, different ones of us. We've been worshipping you and we've been understanding more of what you're saying to us. Now, please, we ask, give us grace to hear and understand even more. Amen. Amen. Okay, so what does it mean to be made? What does it mean not just to be made, but to be the image of God? Well, firstly, the other word used in Genesis 1 can help us with the basics of identity. We're said to be made in God's likeness. So God makes people as like versions of him. He doesn't like dissolve himself into loads of other people. He is able to replicate in us some things of himself. Now he gives us bodies so that we are able to do things that he is able to do without a body. He can see, think, speak, work, relate. He doesn't need any physical form, but we do. So he makes us with a physical form in which those things can happen. We have limits. He does not. He is eternal, he is self-existent, he is omnicompetent. We have a beginning. We are dependent. We grow and develop, hopefully. We learn some degrees of competency in some things. There is a likeness of God in that. Clearly, we're inferior to him in every way. He is the creator. We are creatures, but we are, he has connected us to him. He's made us to be like him. And so it is in him that we must find our identity. The only secure place you can go, not only because it's true, but because he is good. That's where identity is found. And what is our identity? It cannot be separated from our purpose. And we learn about this when we look at what God said about the first humans that he makes. He says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over everything on earth. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is called the creation mandate. What's God doing here? 
He's delegating his authority. He, I mean, before this moment, who has dominion over all things? Who is ruling over all things? God does. And what does he do at this moment? He says, now you do. He's doing what Pharaoh of Egypt did when he says to Joseph in Genesis 41, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's saying, I rule over this land, and I'm now saying, you're in charge. So God gave humans authority to rule. Now, many of us will tend to have some misgivings when we hear that word, and often for very legitimate reasons. So we're just going to emphasize the positive of what this should be like, because our ruling should be like his ruling. Genesis 1 to 2 shows us what God having dominion looks like. He brings order out of chaos. I think we sang that in one of our songs earlier. At the start of Genesis 1, we're told the earth was without form and void. It means there's, 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 just got, there's, there's a kind of chaos, don't know, there's nothing, it's, it's all undefined. And then by the end of the chapter, it has been given form. Time, day and night and space, sky and land and seas. God has made all of those things. He has given form to what didn't have form. And then um, uh, void kind of means empty. And what does God do with these things that he's formed? He fills them. He puts the sun and moon and stars in the sky and he fills the sky and the seas and the land with all sorts of living creatures. And he makes these things that aren't just static. They're not just like, there's one there, there's one there, like, a, I don't know, like plastic toys or something like that. They grow. They're fruitful. Plants and animals, that's what they do. This is a model of what it means to rule. To bring order out of chaos. To bring growth and fruitfulness. Humans weren't put here to sit around doing nothing or even to maintain the status quo. Sometimes like God like, makes it all amazing and just, don't you ruin it. That's, that's not what the Bible says. People often assume that the Bible's creation story ends with everything being perfect. But it doesn't. Everything is very good And it is full of potential. Now, if you've ever bought a house, you know that the word potential usually means a currently barely inhabitable disaster zone. (laughs) That's not what this means. It is very good. And it is wild. And so God makes a garden in Genesis 2, and he puts us in it so that we can see what cultivation can achieve. A garden is different from the outdoors because you do things to it, and that things grow, and they're cultivated, and they become fruitful. And therefore, when we're placed in that garden, we see what cultivation requires so that we can then go and do likewise elsewhere. Everything beyond the garden is waiting for us to get to work on, literally. Timothy Keller writes, gardening is the pattern for all work. It is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. All the incredible variety of habitats and climates 
of animals and vegetables and minerals. They are out there. They are waiting to be explored and discovered. They're waiting to be puzzled over. What is this? What does this do? What happens when we do this? Okay, let's never do that again. Oh, but we can do this and this and this. That's amazing. Nature isn't meant to be left to its own devices, but to be respectfully worked with for its potential that God put in there for us to find to be drawn out. It's interesting, even uh, early on in Genesis, in the creation account, it talks about there being really good gold in the hills nearby. How do you know? Because you go and find it, and then you do things with it. We can do things with what God has made, with his creation that are good, that are better than the current situation. And especially this happens when we work with others on this, because we may have one way of doing things, and they have a different. And you bring those together... You combine personalities, abilities, experiences. You know, whoa, I never thought of that, but that is good. Let's do this with it. And they say, oh, yeah, that's great. And it grows and it develops and amazing things happen. So agriculture increases productivity, which means more people can eat and be healthy. Industry provides technologies so that people can take that food and sit at a table and sit in a house and eat it. And art means that as they sit in their table, at the table, in the house, with the food that agriculture has provided for them and industry has helped them to prepare, they can celebrate by singing and dancing as they do. Later on in Genesis, we'll read of humans establishing cities and developing agriculture and art and industry. Those are exactly the kind of things you'd expect us to do if we were made by God to be like him, to take what he's given us and do more with it. I'm delighted that in two weeks' time, Raphael Marode will be speaking to us about how all this particularly applies to our work lives. I just want to kind of set the scene for it because it's all part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Being fruitful and multiplying. It's another, the phrase is used, it's another way in which we image God. Clearly, this kind of making of creation that we've described, making something with it, is there is a fruitfulness in that. There is a multiplication in that. That tends to be what happens when humans make things, that they do multiply out. But that fruitfulness obviously expresses itself in other ways as well. It images God because God isn't, although he is one God, He's not lonely or isolated. He hasn't always existed in a sense of by himself. He is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have always existed with one another, delighting in one another. And so multiplication, when you've got one man, it's a start, but it's nowhere near enough. Bring a woman in, okay, things are getting much better. And then they multiply, and there's an image of God as community, people as community that comes from that. And God says, don't just like stay in one place, you go. Spread out. Because he created the whole world to be a place of praise and glory to him. Remember what the kings did? They put their statues where? Where they were in charge. They couldn't go to the country next door and be like, just going to put this statue of our king here. People were like, no, no, no. He's not in charge here. Get it out. What does God say? Fill the earth. With what? with my image. Why? Because it's all mine. And I want to show that. All of this puts humans in a situation of unique 
privilege. The heavens and the earth may declare the glory of God. They do. The Psalms say that. But God wants people doing this everywhere. Now, we'll see this this fruitfulness, this multiplication transposed into uh, something different uh, later on in the story. It starts, obvious application in Genesis is they, they have children and they raise children and those children have children. That, that changes slightly later, but the nurturing and the expansionist impulses will remain. That is, again, part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So this is all great. I would suggest this is all pretty amazing. Incredible purpose that we've been given. We don't have to go finding it for ourselves. God has given it to us, but that's an interesting point. We mustn't miss the givenness of this. The authority we have has been delegated to us. That means there's a higher authority. We are not free agents. We are stewards. The king who has blessed us in this way is the most generous giver you will ever meet. He is incredible, but he is also the one to whom we will give an account for what we did with what he gave us. We are not invited to create our own sense of meaning. We're not told to look in our hearts and discover the truth of who we are. We're not allowed to define right and wrong for ourselves. We may rule when we accept God's rule. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do. Enter the serpent. Genesis 2, it's another moment of purpose defining. Adam is told to work and keep the garden. Now, we've already seen what work means, but keeping means guarding. It means protecting. It means keeping crafty serpents out. And in Genesis 3, Adam fails to do that. And then he doesn't interrupt and evict it when it begins whispering lies to Eve. And then both Adam and Eve do what the serpent tells them to do rather than what God told them to do. We've called this rebellion in our series. Uh, Theologian Desmond Alexander uses another word to emphasize how wrong this was. He says, Adam and Eve's disobedience to God is an act of the utmost treachery. On the one hand, they knowingly betray the creator who has entrusted them with his authority to govern the earth. On the other hand, they give their allegiance to a cunning creature who challenges God's authority with the deliberate intention of overturning his careful ordering of creation. By betraying God and obeying the serpent, the royal couple dethrone God. They reject God's authority. And by doing so, they give away theirs. They are cast out of the garden and into a world that is now infected with evil. And all our God-given potential becomes twisted as sin corrupts us. We're all still made in his image, but it has become terribly distorted. And so now we want to receive praise rather than give it to God. Our differences become divisions. Rather than serving others, we enslave. And life does seem to become the survival of the fittest. We experience life as scarcity rather than abundance. 
and that makes us fight rather than share. Our capacity to rule becomes bullying and tyranny. Our ability to create is turned into selfish and dangerous ends. Our power to subdue leads to exploitation and uh, and oppression and destruction. We have become a lot more complicated. A recent newspaper report summarizes the the complexity of this in regards to um, just our impact on the rest of creation. It said, Homo sapiens have only been on the planet for about 200,000 years, a tiny fraction of Earth's timeline, yet our geological footprint is large. Got that right. We have changed the planet's landscapes and waters. Just 4% of the world's mammals today are wild. All other animals have been modified to feed or serve us. According to UN, 38% of the planet's land surface has been converted to agriculture to feed humans. A sixth mass extinction of wildlife in Earth's history is widely acknowledged to be underway. Sea ice is retreating. Extreme weather and wildfires are regular occurrences. He doesn't say it, but what he means is we did that. Some of that has really huge benefits. Some of it is making the world burn. We're able to do incredible things. Some are incredibly good. Some are incredibly bad. Some seem to be both at the same time. How we treat other people shows this too. There have been people who made wonderful art and made other people's lives awful on the same day. There have been doting parents who are slave owners. There are church leaders who have been amazingly gifted and morally compromised. People who read and believe God's word shouldn't be surprised by any of this, even though we are deeply grieved by it. It's what you'd expect if humans were made in the image of God and are yet presently corrupted by sin. And so as much as Genesis 1 and 2 gives us value and dignity and purpose, unlike anything else in all of creation, we are unique in that we alone are made in the image of God. Genesis 3 brings us down to earth, to the grave. You are dust. God says, and to dust you shall return. Humility seems to me an appropriate response to this. To reject self-aggrandizement in all its many forms. To be cautious about any confidence we have outside of who God is and what he has said. But we are not to be hopeless either because enter Jesus. And among the incredible things he says, listen to this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What does that sound like? What might that remind you of something he said? It was a while ago, like at least 10 minutes. Well, Paul makes the connection clear. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
No wonder it was said of him that he spoke with an authority no one had ever heard before. No wonder that he healed and set people free with an authority that no one had ever seen before. No wonder he announced the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the ultimate human. He rules on God's behalf in perfect cooperation with the Father. He refuses the serpent's temptations and casts him out. He brings life and fruitfulness everywhere he goes. He makes things better. He causes praise to God to fill the earth. Because he is the image of God and he's doing what the image of God is meant to do. And ultimately, he achieves all of this through the most incredible act of submissive authority. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God. See how that really, that's image language, isn't it? That he was in the form of God. He did, not account, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped like we try to. But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he did this so that our rebellion, our treachery might be justly dealt with. And so that his obedience might be graciously credited to others. That we might be shown a robe of righteousness. And hear the scarcely believable words. This is for you. The transformation this causes is not just a new way of seeing the world. It's not just an interesting idea to add to all the other ideas that you have. It's not, it's not that. It is a transformation. And again, the Bible uses image language to explain this to us. Romans 8, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That has always been God's plan. Jesus has made it possible. And now by the Holy Spirit, it is happening in you if you're a follower of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of Jesus, singing about Jesus we did today, considering him, having a relationship with him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Colossians 3, you've put off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God is at work now, restoring, remaking, conforming all his people into the image of his son. By his spirit, he's making his people to be like his son, his image. We're to work with him on that. And on loads of other things too, because that's what it means to be made in the image of God. So when Jesus is ascending back uh, to heaven, what does he do? He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and fill the world with disciples, with image bearers. Go and bring order out of the chaos that sin has ravaged. Go and make things grow and bear fruit. Go and care and protect. Go and continue what God has begun. 
And so Christians are to do this in all the ways that mankind has always been meant to and as agents of the in-breaking kingdom of God. By telling people about Jesus, the true image who alone can restore them to who they were made to be. By praying for healings and deliverances, by working for justice and by making disciples and establishing churches so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that, as Jesus put it, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Because this stage of the job will be done. And when that end comes, then the transformation of God's people will be complete. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be made like Jesus. And what will we do with that glorious future? Perhaps it no longer surprises us to read in Revelation that God's people will reign forever and ever. Maybe you've read that before and thought, what does that mean? Now, doesn't Genesis 1 and then the whole story tell you what that means, why that is? Obviously, the fullness of what that means, there's a lot to be discovered of that because there is an enormous and glorious change coming. But it will be in continuity with what God has always made his people to be and do and what he has remade us and renewed us in Jesus to be and to do. So we've seen that being made in God's image gives us identity. It gives us purpose. It imposes obligations on us, which we've all failed to keep. And our failure means that complexity is part of the human experience, but there is hope because there is one who has borne the image of God perfectly and he is now conforming many, many, many others into his likeness by his Holy Spirit. And so those who give their lives to him experience his transforming power now and will do so forever. One final application for us today is how we consider everyone else. Christians have an inescapable commitment to human dignity being intrinsic. We don't think this out of sentimentality. We don't think this out of self-interest. We think this because of scripture, because of this better story, that the dignity and value of every person has been given to them by God. It is not something that is earned or gradually achieved. It is there from the first moment. The Bible says that we are all made in God's image and it reiterates this after the fall, just in case you think, well, obviously that's all changed. No, Genesis 9 verse 6, God says the same thing. The mark of God's likeness cannot be fully erased even if it is defaced. And as all people have this dignity, then all people must be treated this way. Theologian John Calvin gives you no escape from this. 
He says, we ought to embrace the whole human race without exception in a single feeling of love. Here, there is no distinction between barbarian and Greek, worthy and unworthy, friend and enemy, since all should be contemplated in God, not in themselves. When we turn aside from such contemplation, it's no wonder we become entangled in many errors. Therefore, if we rightly direct our love, we must first turn our eyes not to man, the sight of whom would more often engender hate than love, but to God who bids us extend to all men the love we bear to him, that this may be an unchanging principle. Whatever the character of the person, we must yet love them because we love God. Obviously, you cannot relate to every single person in exactly the same way, but you can treat them in the same way. Taking hold of this sense of, Human dignity has caused Christians throughout the centuries and should continue to cause them to find different ways of preserving and honouring and caring for the dignity of all people. And it is, non-Christian historians would tell you, it's a unique contribution of Christianity to the world that anyone thinks this way. So let's just finish by asking, is this how you're treating people? Well, let's ask it a different way. Who are the people, maybe physically present in your life or you're just experiencing them through a screen in some way, who you aren't treating in this way? Is it their personality or their views or their financial situation or what they have or haven't achieved that allows you to think it's okay? not to treat them like this? Is it their distance from you that you have no need to have empathy for them or sympathy or no, no, you've got no sense of obligation towards them? Is it their caste? Is it their tribe? Maybe it's their sin. Maybe it's yours. Being made in the image of God is a privilege of the highest order and a great responsibility. Let's ask God to give us grace to understand it for ourselves and apply it to all those who are around us. Let's pray. Lord God, we have thought of many things this morning. You've shown us many things from your word. Just brief glimpses of huge, huge, infinite depths, eternal plans, cosmic significance. And they cash out in how we're going to deal with people. I want to thank you so much that you have made us in this way. Thank you, you aren't like the stories of other gods. You just needed some slaves to help them out. Thank you that we aren't in a random, meaningless story where we're just trying to make something up that kind of gets us through for a while. Thank you that every person in this room can say, God made me in his image to represent him. I 
Holy Spirit, help us to understand this. Help us to comprehend it. Help us to live lives of clear identity, sure purpose. Help us to acknowledge our own complexity and those of others. Help us to be humble with that. Oh, Jesus, help us also to have hope in you, in what you have done and what you are doing. Lord, those of us here who know you, who love you, who have given our lives to you, we say, help us to work with you, to rule with you in sharing this, that the earth might be filled with your glory. And Lord, we confess there are things we have done and things that we have failed to do that are a neglect and a a failure to dignify others. That's so different for all of us, but all of us, and we want to live this way. Help us to live this way. God, won't you, through us, tell this wonderful, wonderful story? Amen.